there we go. So hey, everybody, this is Rafael Garcia. It is Wednesday, February 8th, and we are back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. And tonight is a very special night because we have on with us a fighter that you should be familiar with. Um, definitely if you've been an MMA fan for an extended period of time. Uh, Schwann and I are here today with former UFC competitor uh, Marcus Davis uh, here to talk about not only his uh great career in the sport, but also what he's still doing. How is he still contributing to MMA? So, uh, Marcus, first and foremost, I want to say thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks, Rafael. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. To Sean. Hey, no problem, Marcus. And uh, as Rafael said, we're going to kind of discuss your career as a whole. But I think what my, my biggest interest in is we discussed earlier was um, I focus on the analytical aspect, the strategical aspect of fighting. And yep. I already know about Marcus, the Irish hand grenade, Davis. I want to know about Marcus, the head coach, Davis, the one we don't hear about very because you're doing a lot of good work. And as an analyst myself, I see it, but I don't think it's getting enough credit or acknowledgement. So we're bringing you on a platform to kind of let you share with us what shaped you or coaching style, what shaped you, your experience as a fighter, how they shaped you as a coach, and kind of like what your style is, what your plan is when you bring in a fighter and when you develop a fighter. We want people to know that side of Marcus Davis, because that side does not get enough attention from anybody. I, I'm an MMA fan. I pay attention to everything. I don't hear your yeah. name being when they talk about the good work the trainers are doing. So I think that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, you, you don't hear much about it. Everybody wants to talk about what I did, but not what I'm doing now. But that's that's. So, so let's like, go ahead and, uh, and, um, and start there then. Uh, Marcus, why don't you fill us in? You know, what are you doing right now? And um, who are you coaching? Where are you coaching? And just some questions like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, most people who uh, tune into the UFC know that I've been working with Tim Boach now. We're going on uh, three years now. Um and uh, right now he's riding a really good uh, win streak, uh, stepping into a fight with a very dangerous, uh, I think number three in the rank, number three in the world, uh, Ronaldo uh, Souza uh, Jacare. Um, and uh, you know, back in, I opened my first gym. So I was a pro boxer, but I opened my first gym in like 1995, and then uh, later. Uh, and actually, in 95, when I opened that gym, I was a nightclub manager at the same time. And one of my doormen was Tim Sylvia. And I told Tim Sylvia that, you know, he needed to learn how to fight, that he was too big not to be able to fight. And he was about 345 pounds at the time, and, uh, training him. And then uh, got him to do a couple of, back then, those Pancrase events where open hand and the stuff that Boss Rutten was doing. We did those. And. He won those fights, and then after attending a UFC, Matt Pat to, to be a sparring partner for some of the guys, and then Tim decided he was going to stay there. Then I flew out there and stayed where he in the apartment complex he was in, stayed there and trained for a while, and then became friends with Pat. And then uh, you know I was started fighting MMA, and Pat. Um, you know, worked my corner a couple of times. And uh, then soon after that, you know, the, the rest is history. I went into the ultimate fighter. Um, Mark Delagrati uh, became my coach uh, for MMA. Uh, my jujitsu coach was George Gergel at the time who I met on the, on the show. Um, so, I mean, now, uh, 
you know, now uh, everything's kind of come full circle. Um, no, is that, you know, I, when I was a child, I started in traditional martial arts in 1981. And then uh, in about, I think it was 1984 or 85, I started boxing and then turned pro after I graduated high school in 92. Um, uh, and I signed a professional boxing contract and I moved to Boston. And there I started studying. Uh, I actually saw that first UFC in 93 of Boston to find out if that Gracie jiu-jitsu stuff was real or not after watching the, 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 uh, the UFC. And I... Uh, looked in the phone book up for the just the name Gracie, and I just started calling them. And they were back then, this is 1995, and the privates were like 120, 120 bucks. And I'm like, that's crazy. I'm not gonna pay 120 bucks. go over there and get shellacked by some guy if it's real. So I ended up finding a, 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 a Jeet Kune Do school. And as growing up in the you know 70s and early 80s, you know, Bruce Lee was my hero. So, and I've always wanted, I read all. All this Daoji Kundo, and, and I was a big, uh, just a, you know, oh, uh, Danny Ansonato, uh, his books and everything. So uh, I ended up going to this school, uh, Gracie Jiu Jitsu. So, you know, I didn't know the difference. I didn't know who Hickson was at the time. And I went over there, and then I got shellacked by this little tiny guy who just tore me up. And so then I kind of started studying. You know, not really my focus at that time wasn't that I wanted to do MMA at all. I was a pro boxer. My focus was I didn't want to meet somebody on the street and that knew uh, how to fight on the ground if I didn't know how to fight on the ground. But when I got there, he was like, well, you know, jujitsu is, you know, it's great. It's this, it's that and everything. But, you know, there's this other stuff that we do. And I really got involved more and in interested in uh, the Filipino martial arts styles and stuff like that. And, and, you know, obviously some of the, 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 uh, Chinese martial arts with the Wing Chun and, and the, and the trapping and, and all that stuff. So, but combining all of that stuff, I really got interested in, and, and a lot of the people, you know, that's not even talked about. And, uh, so, uh, you know, Pantuk and Dumag, uh, you know, uh, these, uh, you know, Filipino martial arts, I really uh, took to, then uh, after doing that, I continued in boxing and I stopped boxing for a while because I signed out what was called a contract of slavery. And during that time, uh, I met a guy by the name of Master Sung Oh Che, uh, who was uh, who was from Korea, um, but had like five black belts and all these different martial arts. And uh, he had a PhD in uh, biomechanics. And I knew of him through boxing because he had trained these guys that were killing everybody on the amateur scene um, and boxing, see those guys. Um, so I wanted to someday train with this guy. So I went in, I started training with him and little did I know this guy knew everything. He was just an absolute genius. And he kind of became my like father figure for a while. And uh, granted I was already an adult, but we got really, really close. And um, you know, he taught me uh, that, you know, fighting is truly science and the biomechanics behind science and then try to get me to really learn, you know, the different planes of motions and learn, you know, how, you know, how to move properly on the transverse plane when you're a fighter and multi strikes like you strikes that 
complement the plane of motion you're going in because we typically start frontal plane and then you're moving sagittal and then you end up because you're you turning transverse but you're hitting all those planes so learning those aspects uh was the foundation of how i was going to become a mixed martial artist later and hey, how Martin. i was going to be what's that yeah i just wanted to ask you because the way you talk about this guy in, in the in the different planes um, I mentioned this before on the show. My brother actually is a Kung Fu man himself. He actually uh, yep. at one point was a 2012 sparring and forms champion. So a lot of my family does the, the traditional martial arts, Taekwondo, Karate, Kung Fu. So I, I yep. appreciate that aspect of what you're saying. Uh, what I wanted to know was, it seems like that guy had a really a big impact on your ideas for preparation and your ideas for strategy and implementing strategy. Yep. That's kind of plant the seed for the, for the path you're on now as far as your coaching like i mean because of course everybody had the you know the hard training hard sparring but it seems like this guy approached you at on a mental and maybe even a philosophical level to kind of change your direction or your path yeah absolutely because at that time you know i was not i was not fighting anymore i was kind of forced into a retirement with a boxing but i was fighting on the street all the time because i had i was running nightclubs and i had a really bad nightclub and we were in fights all the time so his guys that worked there, I ended up, uh, or excuse me, his guys that he had as students, I hired all my doormen came from that gym. And they would come back and they'd say, oh, Master Che, Marcus just killed some, you should have seen what he did this weekend. So I would come in and Master Che would just look at me and would go, you know, I hear that there was an issue this weekend. And I would go, yes, there was. And he'd say, come into my office and leave no details out. So we'd go into his office and we would talk about that. And this whole strategy started to come around where, you know, homeless as a, as a boy in Korea and running on the streets. And he would tell me how he would, you know, build the, he would uh, fight dogs for food. And he would tell me how to, how, you know, how to beat a wild dog in a hand-to-hand -hand fight and the strategy behind that. And then he told me about this time that boy that had stole his clothes and how him and his brother built a cage and put this guy in a cage. I take, take him out of cage once once a day to torture him. And I mean, this guy. And you know, he really the knowledge. I I would bet. I basically say, you know, formula that I need, needed to follow in order to become a guy. Been many years but change certain little things about it to turn it better by math. And then, and I was horrible on the ground. I met George, and uh, the grappling with George. Then I went everywhere, karate. Um, career, um, I have uh, MMA gyms called Team Irish. And then the other one was Team Irish PTC. Um, uh, now, you know, uh, retired from fighting. I flew out to uh, Greg Jackson's and stayed there. It was pretty awesome. I stayed there for, I think, seven or eight days and did these eight-hour-a-day classes with Greg and, uh, you know, his the guy that helps him run the, run the gym um, to be able to be uh, one of his coaches and teach um, his form of uh, MMA uh, in Raleigh. So now I've moved from Maine to Raleigh, and I'm teaching there. Um, 
and uh, at, uh, you know, everybody knows what tap out is tap out the company that used to be, you know, punk ass and scrape and mask. Well, they sold the company and they don't own it anymore. And it's, you know, owned by a you know, bunch of other gym owners and, and uh, people that are in that industry. And actually also WWE, which probably a lot of people don't know that, but they are. Um, so anyways, with all that being said, uh, you know, I've had the, the, the privilege of training with somebody who was an absolute, you know, genius with body mechanics. Then I got to train with somebody like Mark Delagrati, who's a technical master. I mean, Mark Delagrati's technique is, and then be able to go out and train with a technician, somebody who specializes in, in, in tactics and strategy. Um, like, you know, I've been blessed to be able to do that. And then I have my own ideas too, from being in, you know, so many different fights and having a different idea of the things that, that either I believed worked really well, tactics and techniques that worked really well for me, but also the ones that maybe I feared and I was worried about too. So, you know, they typically say the things you fear the most, you tend to focus on the most. You know, you, you, you know that's what the driving force of fear makes people make those decisions. You know, some people get afraid quick fix. They say, I don't want to get hurt. I, I don't want this, but they're not willing to go train martial arts every day. So they go out and they buy a gun, but it's a false sense of security because they leave that gun in their you know bedroom drawer, you know, or they, they go out and they get a dog that, you know, they think the dog's going to help them or whatever. So, but in my case, my fear was obviously uh, at that point in MMA was the wrestling and, and the ground fighting. But when I ended up retiring, I retired with more submission wins than anything else. And then after I retired and I decided I wasn't going to because of injuries and stuff to my eye, I retired. And now, you know, I grapple all the time, you know, as much as I can. And I compete in competitions and stuff. So, you know, I've come that whole full circle with that, you know, being a, oh, I was just going to say, you know, uh, it helps me to be able to understand um, better those things that I used to be afraid of, but now I embrace and I love, which is the wrestling and the grappling aspect of it. Me being some boxer that did okay in MMA, and now I'm training people because that's not even close to close to my story. I mean, my story is not that. So, um, and now uh, I focus a lot. Obviously, my main focus is Tim right now, uh, but outside of that. You know, I had fighters up in Maine, um, training people in North Carolina, and I just got done and I pulled Tim in with me. He was nice enough during his camp to come in and help me, but I did a LEO uh, at the uh, NCTOA uh, conference, which is the largest uh, law enforcement conference in all of the whole state of North Carolina. I was asked to come in. They do a three-day symposium, um, and on the last day they do like hand-to-hand combat stuff and the rest of the time it's all SWAT guys and police and doing all their, uh, you know, competitions and they have speakers, but I was able to go in there and, and teach, uh, what, what, you know, Tim and I's, you know, idea for the future is. And, um, now they've asked me to be involved with two of their SWAT teams and, and be involved in that way too. So, um, you know, right now things are really good. I'm very happy. Marcus, I, I wanted to hit on a couple a couple points that you made. Um, one of the big things I no- noticed that you commented on was you, you you made it a point to 
specifically mention uh, Mark De La Grande. I, I forgot the doctor who taught you the biomechanics. I just, his name yeah. just slipped my mind. Sung Yo Jay. Sung Yo Jay yeah. and um, Greg Jackson. And uh, as a person who, who's worked, as I told you before, I kind of, I've worked with a couple of fighters in cancer before. A thing I've noticed with some trainers, especially as they get into MMA, is they don't do any sort of apprenticeship. They don't do any sort of coaching of any kind. They just get into coaching fighters. And I personally think, in, as a boxer, you know this, a lot of boxers in the old school boxing used to have to do an apprenticeship. You had to learn the craft of training. It wasn't just a matter of you could fight, let me train. Right. It, you had to learn it, and I, and I wanted to. I wanted you to kind of expound on that because there's a lot of young trainers coming up who just think because they have a skill set, yeah. they know how to train. And and yep. in any job, job you have to come up under somebody. You have to look to somebody for advice who, who can kind of direct you until you shape your style. Could you kind of talk right. more about that aspect of it? I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, just because you can, you know, uh, swing a bat or catch a ball does not mean you can coach a, a, a baseball or a football team or anything. And just because you've been in a fight doesn't make you, make you able to coach. Um, so uh, knowing, you know, that this is where I wanted to go and that I would been, you know, dabbling in coaching and, and uh, you know, early, um, and then being able to be around somebody as a genius as Master Che and then uh, really paid attention to, you know, how – Mark Delagrati as a coach, how he, you know, in between rounds and what he was talking to me and how he was able to, you know, he knew me as a fighter and could, you know, he knew those mental anchors, you know, that I had and knew how to push those buttons to, to get me perform, um, needed to, you know, study him as a coach and study everything that I saw him do. And then obviously the next transition is, uh, for those strategy and tactics and, you know, that's why, you know, Greg Jackson's the best guy. Everybody knows that for that stuff. So I went out there just hungry to learn what his, you know, obviously I can't take everything that Greg does. Greg is an individual and the way his brain works and the way he does things is going to be his way. But we had a lot of similarities. So like when we were sitting there, we were talking, he was like, yeah, I want you to take this and I want you to do cluster theory and think, think of this out. And he showed me and I'm like, Cluster, you want me to, is it mind mapping? And he goes, yeah. He goes, do you mind map? I go, I mind map everything. And he goes, really? And I then started talking to him about, you know, how I mind mapped out my whole grappling and everything like that. And then mind map out my striking. And then I ended up doing this massive mind map of all of uh, MMA and everything. So he and I were talking about that. And then he had me do a cluster or mind mapping of uh, watching the John Jones and Glover Textera, that five round fight. And he wanted me to break down every second, every minute along the way and identify A come from Sun Tzu Art of War or Mayamana Masashi's Book of Five Rings or any of the other military type stuff that we were trying to do at that time. You know, uh, you know, uh, you know, it could be uh, a dilemma of two horns or whatever, but identify those and write them down in what minute or second that they happen in. And then after doing that, he wanted me to mind map or cluster out uh things that I thought John Jones, which, you know, come on, man, you're going to try to improve John Jones. But he said, what are some things maybe in this fight he could improve on? And uh, how would you go about that? And then you're going to mind, you mind map it out. And then after doing that, pretty awesome. Uh, I had to get up in front of the whole class and everybody that was there and on the wall. And I had to talk through the, 
whole all those minutes in my cluster. And then after I was done, you know, I got applause and there were other people that were going through this class with me. And the instructor that day said, you know what? He goes, I don't want anybody to have to follow that. He said, so it just wouldn't be fair. I'm just going to call it a day and I'll have you guys start. And so it was a huge, um, you know, big pat on the back and everything. So, and again, you know, uh, really, you know, I knew that I needed to learn more about tactics. I had already read Mayamoto Masashi's Book of Five Rings. I had already read uh, Sun Tzu Art of War way back in like 2001 or 2002. Uh, but, but really learn to identify that stuff and extract it and be able to apply it in the way Greg Jackson does. And Greg Jackson can do that with anything. The guy's, you know, a genius. And uh, so now I'm, you know, that's where my hunger is. That's where my, you know, my drive is, is to, um, Tim was fighting to Souza. The second I found out, I laid down, I pulled up my fight pass. I watched every fight he had with a piece of paper and wrote down things that I saw every second, every minute that, that if he was doing them then, and then I went all the way back to his beginning fights on the internet and found, uh, fights and all that if he was still doing some of the same things it was now a habit you know looking at that stuff and then being able to see the differences and i'm not gonna i don't want to say right now the things that i saw before and the things that i see now that are different don't get me wrong the guy's on the top of the world the guy's still number three in the world and everything but there's some things missing now that were big, big deals early on for some fights. And I'm not going to point those out, but I'm going to, uh, the best way that I can put this is this. In comparison, I look at Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey was super, you know, uh, on top of the world, killing everybody with her judo, judo and, and on the ground, uh, every arm bar on everybody. And, and she wasn't fighting nobody. She was, you know, doing unbelievable things. But I think what happened was, you know, she knocked somebody out. After you knock somebody out for the first time, you're like, yeah, you know, and you kind of, that gets into your ego. That gets into you. And, you're, and then, you know, she gets that coach and says. Sean Evans said it best. He said, there's something about when you, you knock somebody out with your hands. There's something addictive about it. And if you've ever sparred or fought and you land that shot and you put somebody down, you're like, this is a, it's like yeah. a drug. You want to do it again. That's, yeah, it's a good, yeah, you're always, you're chasing that. And then she has a guy telling her, you have heavy hands. You could knock out anybody. You could this. You could that. Then her focus became this boxing. And, you know, me as a coach, I would say, no, 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 no. Your hands are going to be a tool for you to use what your, your main discipline is, which is your judo. We're going we're gonna to make sure that you have no holes. We want to make sure you can fight from the five ranges of combat. We all know kicking range, punching range, trappling range. Grappling range, which is chest-to-chest -chest standing, and ground fighting range. The only five ways that a fight can take place unless you have a gun. So uh, I would make sure that, you know, the fighter is not weak in any of those areas and has tools in all those areas, but you're going to try to force the fight to take place where you want it to fight, right? If, if, you're, if you're best at fighting in a jungle, you don't go out to a field and, and keep the fight there. You know, it's like, 
if you're best at fighting somebody against the cage, you don't stand in the middle of the in, of the octagon. So it's about like I, having, having an identity as a fighter. You have right, to and she did. She, I think she lost her identity, and she believed everybody else after she, you know, was throwing hard and having success, maybe in a controlled sparring scenario in the gym. And uh, you know, where she should have been focusing on is again striking to set up the clinch. But I also would have had that big hole that you don't see, and that's the shooting. Like, she could have been, you know, that would change her whole career. As you know, if you're an MMA fan, you know that if you shoot a double, especially if you shoot a single, she shot singles, what's the first thing people do if they can't sprawl, you know, uh, if you shoot a single? They put a whizzer in. What is a whizzer? A whizzer is an underhook. If somebody does an overhook, you can shoot your hand up and you have an underhook. Now she's got her clinch. That's those are things that I would have been focused Marcus, on that. Marcus, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to interrupt you, Marcus, but me, me and Raphael, after she lost to Nunez, we had the same yep. discussion. And Raphael can tell you, I said the exact same thing. I'm like, if she shoots, she's gonna go for that wizard, bring her up. She's right in the clinch. She's right where she's right. Yeah. Who cares? I don't the defense, coach the defensive reaction the defensive reaction is the opening for for her, her for her attack. So you would want you I mean, hell, if you get them on the ground, that's fantastic. But you're, you're, you're it's a, it's a, what they call a horns of the line. Screwed either way. Either A, I take you down, or B, I get the underhook and I do judo. And that's the way I would have looked at it. I would have had her using that tactic, which is horns of dilemma, to push that, that there. And then if you get her down, or if you push her up against the wall, use your heavy hands. You get her on the ground and beat her up to get her hands up. Now, manipulate her hands for your arm bar or whatever you're going to do. But that should be the focus, not taking somebody who's done judo their entire life and is now in the UFC, and you're going to say, we're going to make you a striker now. Makes no sense to me. And any other person who's, a, you know, again, she needs to be able to strike. But you don't tell somebody you can knock anybody. Once you say, see, you knocked her out, you can knock out anybody. Stand, this girl might be a, you know, three-time world boxing champion, but you can, that's crazy. It makes no sense. I look at myself as a coach. I'm now, I'm an, I'm an assurance adjuster, right? I want no risk, zero. If, if there's something there and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. If, you know, if I have another choice, if I have choice A, which may have a couple of, things that, that, that could go bad and, 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 but you know, the, the chances are maybe 15% chance that this might happen. You know, I'm just throwing out numbers there, but I have B, which there is probably no chances. I'm always going to go with B. It just doesn't make any sense to have any risk at all when it comes to that stuff. And that's your job as a coach. Your job as a coach is to kind of guide the fighter to, to identify where their strengths are, to make them stronger, either hide the weakness or fill that gap somehow, but keep them grounded. Like, let them know. Perfect. I mean, Tim, Tim just walked out, but he'll tell you, when he came to me, called me and he said, hey, man, I, you know, this big fight's going to be in Maine. I'd like you to be my coach for that fight. And he said, would you mind? And I said, yeah, sure, man. You know, we're close. Yeah, Absolutely. So he comes in and he'll tell you the first night he sparred in my gym, I, I have, you know, a big throwdown cage and I had him in there 
and he was sparring for like three minutes. And I screamed at him. I go, who are you? And he goes, what? I go, dude, I don't even recognize you. Who are you? You know, we used to train together years ago at Sitio Tong. I don't recognize you. He says, what do you mean? I go, dude, you're dancing around. You're flicking a jab. You're like trying to, you know, do all this tech. You're not a technician. You're a freaking killer. Now bite down on that mouthpiece. Be perpetual. Ocean. you. You know, that was it, man. We took off from there. And, you know, I think that, again, some identity stuff happened along Tim's career where, you know, he had people talking to him and they were like, you know, oh, wait, you should try this. And if you learn this thing or you do this thing, and you get pulled away from, you know, who you are. And, and the main thing is uh, to be able to allow a fighter to, uh, to express themselves as who they are in the fight, which you don't see that happening enough. You see people trying to emulate other fighters. That's a problem. That's why guys that came in and expressed themselves and looked odd or did things that people couldn't figure out were having success. Leoto Machida had success for a long time. Nobody fought like a point fighter in MMA yet. Now it's becoming something you see more, but nobody was doing it. And he was Chuck Liddell. Chuck Liddell had awkward, odd, like punches and awkward, weird timing. And he had good takedown defense. And he rode, the, the, rode that for, for a very long time. You know, um, there's a lot of fighters out there that are like Khabib. You know how many people, when they watch Khabib, that are high-end high -end jiu-jitsu practitioners and grapplers who say to me, you know what? He kind of grapples and wrestles odd. Saying they don't understand what the other person is doing, that means that person's winning. If you can't figure out what the other person's doing, you, you're losing. So I, I think that people, uh, you know, are doing the, you know, those uh, you know, four combatives. They're doing some jujitsu for the ground. They're doing their uh, wrestling for takedowns. They're doing their boxing for their hands and their Muay Thai for, for uh, you know, their kicking knees and elbows. And I just don't think that, that we're now past that. I think that we all know that those are the tools that you got to use. That it, and, and now it's to the point where uh, you need to tailor for, for fighters. You can't train. You know, you go into a karate gym, everybody's lined up in the exact same stance, throwing the same, you know, punches and a horse stance or same blocks that look like a bunch of robots. You certainly don't want to, which is where my fear is, you're going to start going to MMA gyms and everybody's going to look the same. You don't well, want Mark, that. Okay. Yeah. Let me ask a question because – I've noticed this in boxing, and I'm starting to see it in MMA. I actually, I actually just talked about this on Twitter today. In, in boxing, it used to be you, you looked for guys who had a work ethic, a mental toughness, or an IQ for it. And then right. all of a sudden, you started focusing on the athletes, who's explosive, who hits hard, who's big and strong or long. And what happened with that is, even if you're not a good trainer or that, that person doesn't have a good technique, when you have a certain amount of ability, it can take you so far in combat sports. And I'm starting to see that in MMA where you have guys who aren't doing apprenticeships. They don't really understand the art as a whole. So what they're doing is finding the biggest, strongest athlete in maybe one discipline 
and just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing if it sticks to see well, if they I, can get a champion out of that or get a contender. Because I see a lot of good athletes with maybe talent in one area. I don't see a lot of fleshed out, nuanced, layered fighters. If you understand what I'm saying, I I, I know I can, I know exactly what you're saying, and this is the speech you you gave the short little speech on how it is now. But I always tell people in the early '90s when nobody knew about jujitsu, it was the time of the uh, of the jujitsu of the grappler. Then it got passed over when wrestlers said, "Well, why is this happening?" Oh, wait, I just got to follow his hips. I got to keep my hands on the biceps. I got to do this. And I just got to smash him with headbutts and hammer fists. And that was the time of the rest. We saw Mark Coleman, Kerr, uh, Don Fry, Dan Severn. They started winning fights. And kind of uh, the Gracies kind of disappeared for a while after that. Then the strikers later on, it came time of the strikers. Then they were going, okay, wait a minute. I can do that and follow the jujitsu stuff but I can sprawl and use a wizard and they started to figure things out. Then Maurice Smith and Mirko Krokop and Vanderlei Silva and all these other strikers started winning. So as it started to go through um, and Anderson Silva and all these guys, I call now the time of the athlete. So John Jones, Demetrius Johnson, there's so many guys that are out there. They could ball and play any sport that they want and they could be successful, but they chose MMA as their sport. And that's what I say. I say right now it's time of the athlete. You don't see, um, like you're you're pointing out, you don't see a, a lot of like, uh, you know, nasty, pure uh, martial artist uh, killers out there uh, as much as you used to. Um, you, now you're seeing just guys that are really super athletic, fast, explosive, and they're they have. They have uh, genetics like long reach or whatever it is, and they're really taking advantage of those tools. And so I have an idea where I think it's going to progress to in the future, but right now that's where we're at. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I I, I spent a lot of time because, you know, as a a person, I've trained with fighters before. I've I've sparred with pro and amateurs. I've never fought. And so when I'm giving – I'm talking to people about this, a lot of people are like, well, you never fought. And I'm like, yeah, but I've coached other sports. Um, right. And if if you've paid attention to any sport, like my all my I have daughters, they all do basketball at a really high level. Even at a 13 year old level, they have three or four different coaches who watch them go over game right. tape, have strategy, set up stuff. It's like it's a lot of money and resources put into the preparation. And I'm like, in mixed martial arts, you don't see all that. Like a lot of guys don't have an outside voice to kind of bounce things off of. Because when people come to me, I don't tell them. I already know, like you said, I already know what you're good at. Or like Virgil Hunter said, I know what you're good at. I'm trying to think about how someone will beat yeah. you instead of it's all guys with the same mindset talking about the same ideas. So, of course, the guy gets beat because you're saying, well, his jiu-jitsu is good. But from the other camp's logic, his jiu-jitsu overall is good, but his transitional jiu-jitsu isn't very good. His boxing is good. His kickboxing is good. But the, the transition from kickboxing range to boxing range or boxing range to kickboxing range isn't there. People get too focused on empowering the fighter and not enough on being realistic about what he needs to work on or what he needs to address so he doesn't end up exposing the cage and right. seeing your progression as a fighter like coming in from being a straight for what everybody known as a boxer that's why i'm not surprised at you being a coach because there was a there was an evolution first you came out you were throwing heavy hands then you started doing a little bit of sprawling brawl then you started actively engage creating grappling exchanges and winning them 
first it was a little you take them down then ground and pound then it was submissions then it was first it was ground and pound then it was control then it was submission so i saw that progression and that's why you being a coach didn't shock me because i saw you taking notes and making little steps over the length of your career towards becoming a full a full MMA fighter instead of a boxer who fights in MMA, which, and there's a difference. Some people don't know this. Right, there is actually difference. a difference. <laughs> yeah. And um, actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about Tim because um, I know you caught a lot of flack when he came from Matt Hume to you because Matt Hume has a reputation, a well-earned reputation as a great coach and a fighter. So I'm not going to disrespect Matt Hume. No. I think a lot of people didn't know your background and they didn't know your mindset. But um, when I've seen Tim fight, I know you're talking about getting him back to his, his aggressive killer ways. But even though you're you're getting him back into that killing machine, I notice a little subtle subtle changes. I notice a little bit more attention to detail and how how he sets up his his clinches, how he enters them, right. uh, his ability to counter. Uh, like before, he would move his head, but it'd be kind of separate from everything else. And it, his last couple fights with Samen and against who rest in peace, Josh Samen and uh, Leites, I noticed he'd move his head and counter with it, and his range of punches had gotten a little bit wider. Um, I noticed that over the past couple of years, a lot of people are just thinking it's something new he came up with. Talk about how long it takes to kind of really integrate those those subtle things, because Tim's already got the aggression. He's got the physicality. He gets in that clinch with anybody, those uppercuts, body shots, hooks, he's beating you up, taking you down, eliminating you. But how long does it take to kind of integrate those finer points? Because I, I noticed in the little steps, he would, he'll pressure, and now he'll back off to get the guy to come after him. Then he runs him over instead of just pressure, 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 just little variations. How long does it take to it to to work work that into his his into a fighter's training plan when they haven't been used to doing those things? So I'm about to get real nerdy on you right now. So people oh, I gonna, love it, man. Yeah, people are gonna learn how really how geeky and nerdy I am. So a lot of people <laughs> don't know that I am big friggin' nerd. So uh, years ago I was afraid of becoming punchy. And uh, that fear made me start studying because the reason why I was afraid of becoming a punchy is like all my friends that were boxers, uh, I would see them and I couldn't even have a conversation with them. And, uh, you know, they're slurring the words. They were forgetting stuff all the time. And I wanted to be able to remember my kids' names when I got older and, and I didn't want to be taken care of. So I started studying the brain uh, back in 2008. And um, I got real deep into, uh, you know, uh, how the uh, – neurocortex works for cognition and how the limbic system and and how that works for your reactionary brain and then you have your what's called your reptilian brain which is the brain basically it's human instinct um and then um how the brain in order to take something from the cognitive brain and bypass and get yourself into your into your uh your reactionary brain um they say a general term petitions so what I was thinking to myself is there's got to be a faster way to do that. And so it, typically if you're sitting in a classroom, everything is sight and verbal. So they might be writing something on the board or it might be a shape or it might be something like that. And then there's some verbal teaching going on. So I started then led me into something called metacognition. So it's basically thinking about thinking. So I started studying metacognition, but metacognition, how it would, uh, which I, I, got from uh, one of my other coaches who's Tony Blower, but kind of turned me on to that. Um, I know who Tony Blower is. I yeah, yeah. So Tony Blower and I are, are good buddies, man. And so that's why I work with a lot of law enforcement now is because of that drive I got from, from training with Tony a little bit. So um, 
studying metacognition, um, I started to come up with an idea on how to train a fighter uh, by not only um, using all your senses. So a lot of coaches, when they hold pads, they'll hold pads and they scream out, you know, what to do. Now you're turning your your uh, you're turning your fighter into a robot. I mean, that's it. You know, you're, 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 the fighter isn't expressing themselves for what they see or what they have for openings or anything, because you're 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 you got a remote control car at that point. So uh, I wanted to not only do it on a verbal end, which the verbal end I only use when maybe introducing a new tool or if I, if I don't see something and I want to see it, I might use my verbal, my verbal cues. The other times, you know, I'm doing things that might be visual cues. So which mimic something that could happen in a fight. Therefore I get the fighter to respond. I might do it the first, you know, couple of sessions and the, it takes a split second for the fighter to respond. Later on, I just start to go into it, and they're already firing. So then you have – that's your, your sight. Then I use the energy, so my hands on them, whether, you know, things that, you know, uh, my hands are – touches. So, like, I refer to a counter is something you see, therefore you intercept. So I see your intentions, and I intercept your intentions. A reaction is not that. A reaction is something I did not see, but I felt, therefore I know – if your hand is here, it can't be on your face or by your head protecting you. Therefore, I have a reaction. So we want to bypass any cognitive thinking and make sure that your reactions are always there to, uh, uh, to go to an opening. You know, and they say open gate or closed gate. Somebody opens their gate and you're going in. So an example of that uh, would be the last fight that Tim had with Natal. As he backed Natal up, he threw a couple of punches. Natal reached out. Tim could feel Natal's hand on his hand and did basically like a, like a little poxao kind of like a little – he tapped it down and came over the top and hit him with a hard shot, put him against a cage, hit him with another shot, and then he hit the ground and then, you know, finished him. But uh, so you have that reactionary side. So being able to do that, I think hit everybody on every level is key. Now, outside of that too, I do things with, uh, I have a computer and I put the program on Tim's too, but I do a lot of like neural programming. So to force people into state. So, uh, you know, um, we want to force you. So uh, when you were kids and we're kids and we're growing up, right? When you're a little baby and you're doing everything, you learn so fast. Think about it from age one until you go to school, you're unbelievable. You're learning how to speak a whole language. You learn how to feed yourself. You know, learn how to walk, then run. You learn how to play complicated games. You know, little six-year-olds can take a phone and do, then all of a sudden things start to slow down when you go into school. And the reason why we learn so much as children is because we learn in alpha state. We're always in alpha state and it's like they're, they're constantly being you know, all this stuff is coming at them and they're absorbing it so quickly because they're in that state. Well, what happens when you go to school? They go, shh, sit down, shut up. My directions, they put you into beta state. So what I try to do is I try to keep the fighter in alpha state and I have some ways of manipulating that through not just, you know, neuro programming, but you can use neuro linguistics. And neuro linguistics would be saying things that 
you know that will tap into the fighter. Like you can listen to a fighter or anybody's speech patterns and you can learn their language. Like they use specific things that they're trying to drive. Now I pick up on me and I remember that you know, to your wife and you want to tell your wife how and maybe your wife, only gay guys really use the word, but, but you're talking to her on that. You want to go to this restaurant. You don't know if she's going to want to, but you tell her, listen, I'm telling you fabulous. And she's like, let's go. Using that to talk to a fighter and, you know, is all part of it. I want to just do technique, tactics. I want to do everything that has to do with how that we're trying to do and program it into you faster like uh, you know read the book called the mind virus and 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 learn how you know you're getting programmed at all times so rather than allowing the outside world to program a fighter and make him do that I would rather he actively takes charge and programs himself without listening to everything else and takes over his own brain rather than allowing it to make it, you know, to program itself. So again, you know, there's so, so, so many different things that I go into, want, but you want, you want to have fighters who are, who have an overall awareness. So when they're in circumstances, they can think their way through instead of having to go through uh, like a one, two, three, if a four is demanded, they can go right to four instead of having to go one, two, three, four. They know right. what the, the situation requires. And they make an adjustment. It's kind of like the uh, the concept of ring IQ or cage IQ. Right. Uh, with a lot of fighters, and there, a lot of people get mad at me when I'm on the show. A lot of fighters don't have it. They're literally they only they only throw what their coach told them. They have no concept of strategy or when to use it. Right. Like you said before, you have a great jab, but somebody's trying to take you down. Your jab does nothing. You have a great guard, right. somebody's kickboxing you, so your guard means nothing. You have to have an awareness. Yeah, uh, you're you're constantly in what we call that. You're constantly in the OODA loop. You're always in yeah. the OODA loop, which is the first, it's O-O-D-A. So the first O is your orientation. Where are we? We're in a cage. Where is, where is the fight orientated? Are we in the center of the cage? Or are we up against the, or how far am I from the cage wall? That's your orientation. Then the next, uh, the next thing is your observation. What do I see? What are some key things? Is he right-handed or is he left-handed? Is he taking a boxer stance or a wrestler stance? There's just all these different things that we can see. Is his hands up or are they down? These are all your observations. Um, then your D, you start to make a decision. Okay, this is what I see, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is going to be my attack, and then you act upon it. So that's the whole thing. It's the OODA loop. It's constantly happening while you're in the fight and you're engaging. And then through that, you're trying to identify what stage am I in in the fight. And so, and, and you're trying to get to the end game result at the end, but um, it's that constant knowing uh, where you're at, what your surroundings are, uh, where is he? How close is he to the cage? Or can I keep him? Or do I have to keep him in the middle of the cage? And you're constantly making decisions, different ones, using different tactics during that time. When you're away from them, you're able to cognitively think. When you're close to them in the chaos, that's all limbic system. It's all that. That's all uh, reactionary. It's it's that chaos. So you're going to have that happening all the time, back and forth. And uh, you need to make those decisions and act on them. There can be no hesitation. If you hesitate and you think, I'm going to try to take him down, 
you're not going to get the takedown. It's like saying, ah, I'm going to try to jab him. It's not going to work. So, uh, yeah, that's a constant thing that you got to be aware of um, when you're fighting. Yes. and Or at least the coach. The coach most, so most when they come back. A lot now. This isn't surprising to me because, as I said, I re really when I see fighters, I kind of pay attention to their evolution or lack thereof. So it's not shocking to me that you have this thorough of a thought process. But I guarantee you, when people hear this interview, people are going to be like, "I didn't know that Marcus Davis had this sort of depth to his thinking." I, I think a lot of people really think you're just a guy who used to box and MMA fight, and yeah. you're just getting by on your name. I don't think people like. And when I watched him, I see. I saw, like I mentioned, some of the things I saw you add to them, and I'm like, some of them are very obvious, you know, like the the, the active head movement where he's actually right. active, he's countering off it. But what a lot of people don't notice is that he'll do those little, he'll switch his steps, it'll be full steps, quarter steps, half yep. steps, and then he'll break it backwards to get you to come in. And then he gets that clinch and right. radio. Before he used to just pressure, 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 and get picked off and out of position. But now he's in a position where he gets those clinches a lot more cleaner without eating any shots. And it's like, I, I mentioned this to people before, and uh, it's like nobody else sees it. I'm like, how are you not seeing this? That I mean, backing up and inviting them in. That's called the, that tactic is called the Mongolian Mongolian drop. But yeah, that's that. Uh, yeah, you you know everything you said. You hit it on on the money. Um, and again, um, he's not Tim's not fighting like like he's not fighting anything like me. He's not fighting like me. He's fighting like Tim, and and. What happened along the way, like at the beginning, Tim was coming forward and, and, you know, moving his head side to side and then, you know, you know, throwing big, heavy strikes and taking a little bit, giving more and just smashing guys apart. Now he just moves his head more. He's perpetual motion. He doesn't just move his head. He moves his feet. He moves his hands. You know, if I stand here and there's no movement, then there's movement, no movement, then there's movement, it's easy to see. But if this is constantly moving, you don't know when it's going to come out. So everything has to be movement. Everything has to be perpetual. I always tell him because he's a hunter, I go, do you want to be the deer that sits there grazing in the middle of the field eating? Or do you want to be the deer that's running and jumping over, you know, uh, trees and ducking under stuff so you don't get shot? I, you know, you, you, you have to be perpetual motion. You've got to be moving because if he's trying to find the opportunity to hit you and trying to get the timing, it, it, he's always going to be rolling the dice and taking a chance. He's never going to feel comfortable. And that's, you know, that's been the point. And, but, you know, again, he was already kind of like that. He's just doing that more now. So it's like, again, uh, his, his, it, what he does is faster, better, stronger, and just more Tim Boach and less copying some other coach or some other style or something he saw or whatever. And I'll, I'll say to Tim, I'll go, hey, Tim, what do you think of this? And I'll show him something, and, he'll, and, and he just goes, I don't know. It doesn't feel right. I go, okay, don't. it's gone. And then there might be a time uh, that I say, what do you think of this? And then he'll, you know, tear my head off or he'll do something with it. And he'll go, oh, I like that. And then all of a sudden, he's just smoking everybody in the gym with it. You know, we train at TFTC. When he comes down to North Carolina, I take him to the tactical training, uh, 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 tra tactical fighting training center, which is in Clayton. And it's run by a buddy of mine named Neil Weaver and Carrie Weaver. And uh, we go in there and uh, they'll tell you 
that, uh, you know, there are specific things that Tim does that when he does them, you will not stop it. And it's like, you know, the George St. Pierre thing. You can, you know, George St. Pierre, every time he fights, he's going to use long strikes. He's going to use a jab and he's going to use Lee's lead leg. He likes to keep everybody far because he's really long and he does not like to get into bang outs. He, he doesn't like to use uppercuts and knees necessarily. Once you get beyond that jab and that kick, he's going to shoot that double every time. And you can prepare for that, but you can't stop it. We've all seen, doesn't matter. Takes every wrestler down. He, he, that's what he does. Tim has things like that too, that we've identified, and he does it to everyone. So again, like I said with the Ronda Rousey thing, why would we want to then try to make him do something else and, and have this identity crisis. No, we keep feeding that and make it better. And along the way, you know, you add a little bit of this, a little bit of that, that he identified. Not what I identify with, because I'm not going in there and I'm not fighting the fight. He's the one that's got to do it. And if at any point in his mind, you know, he does not feel comfortable and says, ah, I'm, you know, this, uh, and hesitates, you know, hesitation will kill you. So, you know, you, you can't do that. So, um, you know, and we just, again, uh, my main job now, like as we go into the fight this Saturday for Tim, my only job right now is to make sure he stays healthy and his timing is there, that his timing and his accuracy is there. I Obviously, uh, he, he's in great shape. You don't have to worry about that. And that that he's not doing anything that either stresses his nerve his central nervous system. You don't want that to happen, especially with a weight cut and everything. And I don't want him working too hard. I just want him sweating because um, we're saving it for the cage. And uh, that his mind's solid. That nobody else is getting in there and saying stupid shit to Tim to uh, you know to get him thinking about something else or whatever. So that's it. That's that's all my job is now. Two things you just said. One thing, my, my old coach, Timothy Madoon, he's from Santana, he used to tell me a coach's job isn't to change somebody, it, it's to help them become the best version of themselves. That's what you're supposed to do. Whatever you do, identify, identify and grow. Yes. And secondly, one thing I've noticed, and I'm talking to some of the fighters I've talked to, at first I thought it was just a technical thing, but as you talk to, talk to fighters and they get around their camp or their entourages or whatever, I've noticed a lot of the stuff I have to do ends up being psychological because I'll be I've been on like some group chats where we're going over techniques and strategies and somebody will be like, oh well, you do this and we'll get to this title fight. And I'm like, dude, do you he has a fight in a month. We don't need to worry about the title fight or this <laughs> yeah. or that. It's a hundred percent focused on this guy. Oh well, he's right. better than this guy in this area. I don't care. There's still a guy with arms and legs who can knock you up. You have to focus a hundred percent on this dude, not on this title or the fame right, yeah. or, or what's going on with your mom. I mean, I know it's a stressor, yeah. but you have to clear it out because mentally when you're, like you said, your mind's distracted, you can't pull the trigger and not being able to pull the trigger or not being, it's like being in a street fight, which you'll yeah. understand if oh, yeah. I, I, I could, I could be a lot more skilled than a lot of people, but there's people I wouldn't want to fight because they'd be a hundred percent engaged from the word go. It might take me a second to get a hundred percent engaged. And that second, it takes me to get engaged. I'm finished. I'm getting yeah. beat up. I'm getting embarrassed in front of everybody yeah, that's the hesitation hesitation will kill you that's what it said yeah how many fighters who hang around other fighters and coaches routinely get off on tangents about dip things that don't matter 
when they right. have a fight coming up. It makes no sense. And I'm like, why are y'all talking about this when he's got a fight in a month or a week or in two days? Why are we talking about a title shot now? Like that, that right. shouldn't even matter. Win the fight. Everything else will happen. After. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. The, you know, we talk, I talk about, like I was saying before the, the kiss method, which is the keep it simple, stupid. And that's what that is. You know, it's, it's, you have one job right now. Your one job is to beat this guy and win this fight. Your job isn't to uh, worry about, you know, uh, you know, what's in the future. Because your future rides on this one fight. That's it. And, that, and, then, and if you can get them focused on that and know that nothing else matters because nothing else that could happen is going to happen unless you win this fight. And uh, so I study all this like Hicks law. So I don't know if you know what Hicks law is. So by keeping things, keep it simple, stupid goes along with Hicks law. And what Hicks law says is that uh, the more options I have, the more options I have, and they, and the more stimulus there is, the higher chance of failure there is. So in a fight, you're not going to cognitively run through your Rolodex of techniques. So you're going to have the things you do the best and you react and you do, that's what you're going in there with. If you start trying to, if you panic and your, your mind gets off, what you got to do, which is the same thing about thinking about your championship fight or doing whatever, you know, you can't do that. You got to stay in the moment and, you know, you can have unbelievable camps how many people you whooped ass on, you know, your whole life or in your camp or how great it does not matter. What matters is that moment in that cage, who are you and what are you going to do? That's it. Nothing else matters. Your name, your record, it's all bullshit. Who you are in that moment. And that is what ruins and eats up some fighters because they don't, they're not in that moment. Their head is the crowd or, you know, who they're fighting, the mystique of the guy they're fighting, the mystique of Anderson Silva, you know, until finally somebody said, you know, Weidman said, I, I'm going to beat him, you know, and you, you kind of, you know, that happens, but it, it takes a special kind of, not, I, I mean, it does take a special fighter to do that, but also takes a special team of people to be behind him. I'm sure a loving wife, uh, p positive family, um, good coaches, good teammates, you know, feeling safe and secure in his surroundings. You know, it's like tra uh, having a child. If a child grows up in a house where the father is beating the mother and it's unstable and chaotic, you will grow a chaotic, unstable child from that. But if you have a gym, that there is a, a, a trainer who controls everything that happens, weeds out the bad guys, brings in the good guys, everybody cares legitimately about each other and are all in the pursuit of greatness. And everybody does that, you will foster champions. So, you know, I, you know, and that is 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 what's important in this game for for you know for a fighter. A fighter needs to feel like you know, Tim's, I'm not, I, I'm Tim's friend. I'm Tim, you know, Tim's like 
you know, my little brother. You know, he's not, I don't look at Tim as like, you know, I have a job, which is I coach him, but, you know, I have an emotional attachment to Tim outside of being his coach. I've always liked him. And we have so many, like, as far as our value system, it lines right up to each other. We're both family men. We're both avid gun guys. So many things we have in common, but there's also a lot of things that we have that's different, but it complements each other because I've learned stuff from Tim that, you know, I didn't know I was going to learn and vice versa. So we're, this is a symbiotic relationship. You know, it's not just, you know, he's taken from me or I'm taken from him. We're constantly giving. And I know his family, his wife, his kids. We were just talking to, you know, he had a son bear on today. And it was weird because just a few minutes before I was looking at the picture of me holding bear on my lap, drinking coffee. So, you know, it's different. And he, you know, stays in, he stayed in my house and many, many times. And when we were in Maine, we had our own bunk beds. We slept in bunk beds <laughs> in Maine together wow. at my house okay. in bunk beds. And we'd sit there and watch Netflix and, you know, like we were, you know, like, you know, the stepbrothers. That like, should have been a YouTube that's what we were. That's what I needed to see. Oh, it it was Marcus Davis oh, yeah. bunk beds on YouTube. Yeah. I needed to see that. Yeah. Karate <laughs> in the karate in the garage and and I had and in my house I have samurai swords all over the place too. <laughs> and guns we had because yeah, Tim and I both shoot in the AR fifteens and okay, like, see, pistols see Marcus, everywhere. Marcus, you brought it back with the guns because before you were starting to lose that reputation as a tough guy. I was like, yeah. maybe he's not as tough as I thought he was with all the <laughs> Oh, no, I got lots of video, too, of me shooting things and training with cops and doing all kinds of other okay, stuff. Yeah, so go, I'm with Tim in. and I. <laughs> Tim's, got, Tim's, got, Tim's got his Tonto knife out and he's swinging it around. I show you the video. <laughs> <laughs> in New York City, uh, of all places where you don't want to have that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, let, let's talk about something a little bit lighter. I, I told you before I'm a boxing fan, and I just wanted to get yep. your opinion because at some point in MMA, Boxing was really dismissed as a martial art. And it's very yeah. funny now that some of the trainers who are getting the most the most props and some of the biggest improvements in fighters is all boxing oriented. Like a lot of the Donald Cerrone's recent success is because his punching technique and his form and his setups got better. Jorge right. Masvidal has been a long time one of the better boxers. Even Conor McGregor, Nate Diaz, who you know because yeah. you, you uh, fought him at one point. Yep. Does, as a boxer, somewhere inside of you, does it kind of like warm your heart a little bit to be like, See, I, I told you this art had more to offer and see people finally catching on to that aspect of it when you were light years ahead of it. Years ago, you knew the value, but other people didn't. Right. Does it kind of give you that little, the little like, see, I told y'all, I told y'all this had something for you. Well, you know, I, I honestly, I don't really think about it that way because I think that, you know, my brain at some time, at some point made that switch where that didn't become what I thought. I mean, I don't think that way. Um, the way that I always was, I thought of it is like every single martial art on its own does not stand anymore on its own. So yeah, Gracie Jiu Jitsu, what it came and showed to be like at that time, supreme. But you cannot just do Gracie Jiu Jitsu now and be a success. And Jiu Jitsu in itself, if you are, if anybody's a Jiu Jitsu or grappling fan which I'm a huge one, and people don't know that, but I love grappling. It's not the same. Everything that back then people were saying, don't do this, it's dirty, or don't, we don't do it this way. We don't, it's completely changed. So like it's morphed itself. 
And so there are certain things you can do in sport jujitsu that will not work in there are some things that will, but you have to change little things about them. Same thing with boxing. You cannot stand in a boxing stance and check kicks or defend takedowns. Why can't you? Because there are no kicks and takedowns in, in, in boxing. So therefore, you can splay your body and take away your targets much, much better, but you can't do that. In, in, in MMA. You don't want to take a Muay Thai stance, but you don't want to take a boxing stance. Muay Thai is too square. So again, everything's like that. So like, you know, you can't fight a Muay Thai, like a Muay Thai stance in MMA either because it shows too many targets. So again, everything has something to offer, but it must be adapted into MMA and you got to be able to identify where are my vulnerabilities and by doing this, uh, you know, am I still holding true to like body mechanics and, and uh, my, you know, math, my MMA math. So like anybody who trains with me will tell you that all the time I talk about achieving balance. I know this sounds funny because it sounds very traditional martial arts, but it's the truth. You know, striking and stuff go, well, it's everything, but you know, like if, if I throw a punch, my head goes beyond my knee. Body mechanics dictates I am off balance. You may not feel like you're off balance, but you are. And I do these demonstrations to show exactly what I mean. Thing is an exact art. It's an art of milliseconds. You either hit or you miss. Almost. You can almost in grappling. You can almost get a submission and get out of it you can almost get choked you know so it's it, they're different that, that way balance aspect of it if i am off balance at all there is a, cor a correction of that balance and again you may not feel it and um that correction is that split second of a exchange where caught and gets knocked out so when you take two guys that are of equal level, they could fight many times and have a different outcome when you're of equal level. But where do they get caught? They get caught during the transition of the chaos. So when everything's happening, they, they made one false uh, reaction in that moment or there was an adjustment of their balance and they got caught and uh you know that's you know that there is something that i think again you know when you're talking about uh these arts and all this stuff you can't shoot the exact same way and you can but you're it's high risk that you're going to you know that you can't knee somebody in the head in, in wrestling you you can't choke somebody unconscious in wrestling so you can do a front, you know, you can do like a, 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 a neck snap or front head, a headlock or whatever. You can do stuff like that. You can, you know, you can do a, a chin strap or whatever in wrestling, but you can't put somebody in a guillotine choke and choke them unconscious. So there are things that you have to do with your wrestling shot to just change your posture a little bit so that you're not going to, you know, that you're not going to get caught with anything like that. So the whole, my whole point is, you know, many martial arts have things to offer, 
uh, I would say the, the biggest majority of them do. It's identifying what can be modified and will fit in MMA. And, and if I do so, is it going to, you know, take me off balance or if it, or is it going to leave me vulnerable, uh, for any of those other use in this? Uh, that's, that is like some great knowledge. And, uh, you know, Marcus, I want to really, uh, thank you on behalf of Raphael and myself for coming on the show. I'm really hoping that, uh, when people hear this, they get to see that other side of Marcus Davis that, that even though I had never talked to you before, I, I, yeah. I get sleep right. your fighting in interviews. I heard of you. I'm uh, even more impressed than I was before. I, um, you are a great guy to talk to. And um, hopefully in the future, you know, we can have you back on the show. We can have some more of this nerd fight talk. It's stuff I love. I'm like this all the time on the show. So I personally love it. I, I had a great time doing this. And I, I wish you and Tim the best of luck on Saturday night. And I'll um, put Tim in there real quick. Tim, say hi to everybody. Can What's you see? What's happening, everybody? Hey, Tim, good luck the I don't know. Where is he? I see him. <laughs> yeah, we see him. Oh, okay. Hey, good luck in the fights tomorrow this week, or uh, good luck in the fights this weekend. They're saying good luck on the fights this weekend. All oh, right on. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, he appreciates that, guys. Good. Ready to smash some right hands into some <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to see it. Uh, we look forward to having you back on the show again. Maybe maybe next time we can have Tim chime in and get, get a little bit of more of his, his history and his perspective of fighting, yeah. too. But uh, absolutely, you've, you've been great, and I look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you very much, Mr. David. You were our first, our first interview ever, and you knocked it out of the park. Thank oh, you. Oh, thanks, man. You're an encyclopedia too, man. So I was impressed with a lot of stuff you said. I mean, you know, you you, you know your you know your stuff. So you guys are going to have a really good uh, show here because, you know, like we said, you know, not everybody can be a trainer. Not every you know fighter can do do that. You can obviously. Uh, host a MMA show because you have the knowledge behind it, and you know you guys. Are, you guys are going to be great. That means a lot to me, sir. Thank you very much, wholeheartedly. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. You got it, man. Okay, Peace we'll catch out. you later, Mark. See you guys. You too. Be safe. So, uh, Schwan, man, it was definitely a great conversation there, man. Um, Marcus is a he's man. He it's crazy. Oftentimes, that, that, dude, that dude is deep. He is really it, like he's sitting on. He's on a level that people aren't people aren't even aware of this. People are gonna hear this and be like, Marcus, what? The guy who used to fight, is he this deep? <laughs> oftentimes it's interesting because oftentimes people think of these guys are, that they just get in there and they just swing at each other, or there isn't like a really scientific nature behind um fighting. And Marcus definitely took a step in quelling all of that, man. It's great hearing someone talk about the aspect and, and the the intricacies of fighting in such a detailed manner. It was excellent. But you know the one point, the most important point he made on that interview, right? Yeah, go ahead. The most important point he made was letting the masses know that we're not like these other shows. We know what we're talking about. Me and him were going tit for tat, technique, strategy, philosophy. So the people who think that we're just talking, we don't know, you have a, a professional trainer of a professional top-ranked fighter who just said, if you doubt these guys, you're wrong. They know what they're talking about. They know how to do a show. They know how to break down fights. They understand technique, philosophy, and strategy. I didn't have. I didn't make him say that. He said that himself. So for all y'all who don't think we have it, but there you go. We don't have to say no more. I don't. Ha I don't have to repeat how great we are. But I'm gonna do it anyways. <laughs> We're that good. So let's uh let's look forward to this weekend, man. Um, we got UFC 208. 
on Saturday with a pretty interesting uh, main event here. We got Holly Holm and Jerron Deronomy fighting for the inaugural, or not the inaugural, excuse me, fighting for the women's featherweight title, 145-pound belt here on the line. And it's an interesting matchup because I, I'm willing to bet that a lot of people aren't too familiar with Deron- with Deronomy, a lot of main- mainstream fans. I'm looking at the odds, and right now, the last time I looked around, um, Holm is actually the underdog. I think she was a minus 120 or excuse me, she was a plus 120 underdog to Deuteronomy's um, 120 favorite. So, and I'm reading a lot about this fight, and I'm, I'm very interested in it because a lot of individuals are picking uh, Deuteronomy to win by a unanimous decision. And they're pointing out a lot of different things that you've brought up again in the past. For example, that um, they don't expect Deuteronomy to be someone to uh, strike first. We all know that home is a very great counter boxer, but she isn't. She struggles when she's forced to go first, as we saw with her fight against um, Shevchenko. And he also pointed out to Holmes' lack of power. You know, she doesn't. She's a point. She, I I hate to use the term point fighter, but she is very good at point fighting to an extent. Yes, she has power with her left head kick, which kind of you know which rattles people's minds from start to finish. But um, talk to me about this fight, man. What are some of your thoughts, and uh, what do you think is, is going to go down on, on Saturday? The funniest thing about home, and I'm, I'm a home fan. She seems like a good person. She loves her husband. She loves her father. She's a hard worker. She's obviously mentally and physically tough. But the weirdest thing about it is here's a woman who's had so many titles in boxing, and her, kick, her kickboxing, her actual kicks, are her best weapon. She's not... She's not the best boxer in women's MMA, to be quite honest. Even though she has all these accomplishments, she wasn't one of the best technical boxers in boxing. She's not one of the best technical boxers in MMA. I can, I can name four or five fighters who have better hands than Holly Holm. And she didn't learn how to box in a structured, traditional boxing manner. She learned from Mike Winklejohn. He's not a boxing coach. He's not a boxing instructor. He's an MMA, traditional martial arts, kickboxing coach. So her boxing's always been there. And a lot of the things she does, she's a, she's a counter person, but she's a volume counter person. She throws a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of volume, which is fine when you have people who just run in at you. But when, when she fought Rousey, that highlighted it because she had somebody who just kept running and running and running into her and had no way to battle her in that kicking range. She just had to run into clinches, which means she was running into punches and Holly would circle out. Ronda would reset, run, in, and run into punches again. Her first two fights in the UFC, actually told you all you need to know about Holly Holm. If you are not, if you're a comparable athlete or comparable skill set and you don't run right at her, she's gonna look normal. All that speed, all that agility, all that athleticism, it, it doesn't last because she's incapable of leading a fight effectively. And when she does lead a fight, she ends up getting countered. She got countered against Raquel Pennington, got put on her butt. When uh, Renault started putting some pressure on her, she started landing some shots, but she just never would do it long enough. It ended up being just a point fighting, Ronda, Holly throwing a lot of different strikes from outside, most of them getting blocked, but occasionally landing two for every six shots she, she threw, which means she's still outlanding her opponent who's just following her around and waiting, following her around and waiting. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how this fight um, plays out because what I'm... What, Rondami, um, can make her pay. Rondami can make her pay. She's not just a counter person. She's a counter person who is... Like, she hasn't beaten a lot of elite women in the UFC, but the way she's beaten them, put on them when she's put hands or knees on them, it's really impressive. And Holly Holm is not the most durable fighter in the world. Excuse me, Valentina is actually a flyweight, and she was busting Holly up. 
she was really busting Holly up on the feet. And she wasn't putting any sort of volume on her. If Rondami lands those kind of counter shots, I don't know that Holly Holmes sees the end of five rounds. The only concern I have is does Holly is does, is Holly Holmes going to work a wrestling angle? Is she going to mix it up and make it a mixed martial arts fight? Because she, she he has a legitimate wrestling and control game. She can she can grind out a win over Rondami. If it's going to be strictly stand up, I don't like her chances. I do not like her chances at all. Well, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what goes down here, man. Because um, home is in a tough spot, you know, getting a title shot after losing two straight, and Deronda is someone in a whole year. She has, she has, yeah, you're right. And on top of that, you know, Deronda is someone who isn't a star. So I'm not going to say that the UFC is rooting for someone, but they definitely have benefits if home pulls out the victory on on Saturday. I mean, we. We understand what's happening. You know, this is becoming a it's becoming a sport where entertainment is is drawing more and more value. And I understand that. I get that. In Deuteronomy, they have someone who is she's one. She's three and one. No, excuse me, two and three and one. Yeah, three and one in in the UFC. And but she hasn't. She's never looked spectacular. Um, she has two KO wins. I remember her fight against Julie Kesey when she made her debut, and it was kind of, it was difficult to watch. It, it was a questionable decision there as well, too. So, I'm really interested in seeing, A, not only what happens in this fight, but what happens immediately afterwards. If, how is this, um, how is this champion going to be promoted if home doesn't get the belt on Saturday? I, I really think that the UFC has put themselves in a really tough position, because like we said, home Home has somewhat of a name, but Home was never a big draw, and she hasn't won a fight in a year. The last time we saw her fight a, a top-end striker, we were seeing her, her getting outpointed and outworked over over five rounds by a bantamweight. Now she's supposed to be a featherweight. She's not even a legitimate featherweight. Rondami has a winning record in the UFC, but the only name she fought, the only elite fighter she fought, she lost to, which was Amanda Nunes. So if Rondami wins it, she has no fan base. I mean, maybe in the Netherlands, but she doesn't have any fan base in America. She's not a pay-per-view draw in America. And in, any heat that Holly Holm had, you know, for those pro wrestling fans, any heat she had from the Ronda win disappeared when she got finished by Misha Tate and then got beat up by a flyweight. So it's like this fight doesn't have any real appeal. And the fact that it doesn't involve any legitimate featherweight who's been fighting as a featherweight makes me discussing the future of the division because – I can't imagine Holly Holm staying it. She's already talking about going and challenging for the, the Bantamweight title if she wins. I mean, Rondami can fight a featherweight. It might stay there. But is she the kind of person you can build a division around? I mean, I'm, she seems very cool. She seems very she's a talented fighter. But does she have that kind of charisma and that, that kind of vibe and that style that you can build a division around? I don't know about that. I mean, I, I don't know that this is going to go much further than it does Saturday night, depending on how it goes, because they don't, they haven't added any featherweights, you know, they, they haven't signed any, so it doesn't seem like they're very sold on this, if you, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I can definitely um, agree with you there. It doesn't seem that they're very sold on this uh, situation here, so uh, I, yeah, this is, this is this is a questionable fight for a number of reasons, not necessarily just the intrigue of, of the fight itself. I'm, I'm interested in the fallout of who becomes champion and how they are promoted going forward. Because honestly, man, this individual could be less of a draw than Demetrius Johnson. And that's saying quite a bit. Yeah. And the only person who's a draw of featherweight is currently on suspension. And we already know that 
if home fights her because home was offered featherweight fights against the person who, against cyborg and she never took him if cyborg comes back i don't know that home stays at 45. so yeah, they, so it, it's, it's almost to the point where they have to have randami win because she might stay at 45 and fight cyborg she might from what i know what i've seen of her she she would but home wouldn't so then you have the the person who held the title dropping it to go back down a weight that's that's just not a good look for a newly established division plus like i said they don't have anybody they haven't brought in anybody. They haven't signed anybody for the division. So what, what am I supposed to believe? How invested can I be in a division that might not be there a week from now? <laughs> you said a week from now. Yeah, it's definitely going to be um, a tough situation there. And so let's look at who's probably the biggest draw on this card as we talk about Anderson Silva and um, fighting Derek Brunson. Again, this is another fight where I see people picking the underdog and they're picking Brunson to get the victory here. Um what are your thoughts on this? Do you think he's someone that uh, we should be kind of we, we should be concerned about as someone who can defeat um, Anderson Silva at this point in his career? The main thing we have to be concerned about is Anderson is no longer his durability is not completely there. He's not able to fight for prolonged moments. He's kind of a he explodes in spots, looks for big counters, and he's facing a big, strong, powerful, dynamic guy. But the thing about it is. If Anderson loses, people are expecting him to lose. It doesn't hurt his legacy. It doesn't hurt him at all because he's fighting a prime top 10 guy. But the thing about it is the person who's really in danger, the person who really needs to watch your step is Derek Brunson. Every time he's gotten to a certain caliber of opponent, he has gotten smoked. Not just close losses or competitive losses. He has gotten stopped dead in his tracks. He fought Yo Romero, competitive, competitive, knocked out. He fought Robert Whitaker. Wild fight, crazy fight, exciting fight. He ended up getting, I mean, one of the cleanest knockouts you will see ever in your life. And if you're telling me there's no chance that Brunson doesn't come and get wild at some point in the fight, like he does in every fight, that he doesn't overextend or or get over aggressive in his or over pursue and walk into a big shot, if you're telling me there's no chance of that happening happening against Silva, I'm telling you, you don't know fighting. There is a chance from beginning of into that fight. Silva to land a shot on Brunson and when Brunson gets hit window his technique goes out the window and he starts bombing and there's nobody who's been better in the history of the UFC of landing a clean counter shot than um, Anderson Silva and people can say his chin's a little shaky he hasn't won a fight in a while but he performed well enough against Nick Diaz and against Michael Bisping who put on a better fight against Michael Bisping than than Anderson Silva he came closer to finishing him than Dan Henderson did he came closer to finishing him than Luke Rockhold did he came. He did better against Dan, against Michael Bisping than Tali's Latis did. He came. He came close. Even though Tim Kennedy beat Michael Bisping, he didn't put the beating on him that Anderson Silva did with essentially a minute and a half of fighting. So he's still capable of those big bursts, and he's capable of finishing guy at any moment. And Derek Brunson is a guy who always makes himself available to be finished. With all that athleticism and all that skill, he does not always play to his strengths. He doesn't always fight smart. He doesn't always fight with an awareness. The same awareness we were talking about with Marcus, with Marcus Davis. He doesn't always fight with that awareness. And if he doesn't, he could get finished by Silva. And if he gets finished by Silva, that is a crushing, crushing blow to his career. At this stage of your life, you don't get beat by a guy like Silva. That's like getting beat by Rashad Evans at this point. It's not supposed to happen if you're a guy in your prime. That's not supposed to happen. And if it does happen, that means you've taken a huge setback in your progression and you're taking a huge step back in the rankings and you might not be in the UFC too much longer. He can't afford a loss. He can't really afford it to be a competitive fight, to be honest. And yeah. 
Yeah, I can, can definitely get with you on that, especially seeing how um and you played a, you made a good point with that Yoel Romero fight. That's always a fight I look back to when I think about Derek Brunson. Imagine what that win could have done for his career if he could have held on for what like the last two minutes or something like yeah. that. Like he was, he, he was winning the fight. He was out wrestling him, out striking him, and then he just fell apart. He was totally winning the fight, then he gets slept. And like imagine what that win would have done for him at this point in, in his career now. So you're exactly right, you know, when you look back at his history and what he's done in big moments where he's kind of withered. It's funny because, you know, you always see that across sports where you see guys get to they get to the cusp, they get to that moment and then they just fall apart. Hell, Donald Cerrone did it against um Jorge Masvidal again, you know, getting to the getting to the big point getting to the big moment. And not getting a uh, job done. So this is something that we've seen in um, Derek Brunson in the past, and it'll be interesting to see if he can overcome that hurdle on Saturday. I, I hope so because, it, it, like I said, people think I'm people can think I'm being hyper hyperbolic, but if he loses this fight, a fight that he really should lose, it, it's really a big setback. And everybody's acting like he can't lose this fight. I'm sorry, Robert Whitaker, Whitaker isn't always the most accurate counterpuncher. He shouldn't have landed. He, he should have knocked him out. Some of these fights he's been in shouldn't have even been as tough as they are, but they are because of those mental lapses. And if there's anything a veteran can still do late in their fight, it's slow the pace down and pick spots to take advantages of mental lapses. That's what veteran fighters do. And what is Anderson Silva? He's a veteran fighter, and he's really only lost to the best. Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson isn't the best. He lost to Chris Weidman. He lost to Daniel Cormier, the light heavyweight champ of the world. So he's lost to a middleweight champ and a light heavyweight champ. Derek Brunson isn't either one of those things. So you're telling me he can't lose this fight? I, I'm sorry. I won't be shocked if he gets stopped. I will not be shocked at all if, if Silva stops him. Totally with you on that. And, you know, we just got done talking to Marcus Davis about his um, about his fighter, Tim Bosch, facing off against Ronaldo Sosa. We also had a special guest appearance by Tim Bosch, and we definitely appreciate that. What are your, what are your thoughts on this fight here? Uh, I, I really think, I, and I was going to say this before, I really think, Bosch, Bosch can get this fight because Jacare, Jacare, I feel a lot of his striking is more athletic than it is super technical. And a lot of the guys he's fought have been guys who, who've given him the respect and given him the space to work because they're fearful of his takedown. They're fearful of getting in a clinch with him. They're fearful of his athleticism. Kamozi was, even though he put on a brave front, he was aware of what Jacare had done to him before. He was trying to stay away from him, control the pace, and he didn't want to really engage him. Um, Musasi, before he turned the switch and became into this violent killer, Musasi was doing his typical, I'm kind of lay around, pick my shots, try to control you, and, and just outclassed you with technique. He had no sense of urgency, no sense of drive. And everybody, and the only person who's really attacked Jacare was Romero. He's the only guy who went after him. And when he went after him, he had a huge amount of success with him. I think Boch has the power, and now with the little... The, the adjustments he's made as far as being an active counterpuncher off of slips and parries and the footwork he, where he mixes it up, I think he's a very live dog. I think he can actually beat Jacare. Jacare is athletic and dynamic as he still is. He's not as athletic and dynamic as he was two years ago or three or four years ago when he fought Luke Rockhold. He's not that same guy. He still can. He's still better than the majority of middleweights, but it's not as huge a gap as he used to be. And when you're a guy who's used to working with huge gaps, um, it's not as – it's you're not as effective when that gap goes away. And beating up on guys like Kamozi and beating up on guys like Musasi who have that mindset, that's a little bit different than a Tim Bosch who's actually going to come after you with a controlled but very deliberate aggression. Tim isn't going to be afraid of Jock Ray. He might be aware of his threats and aware of the things he can do. He will not be afraid of him. He will not be trying to get away from Jock Ray. He's going to come after him. And 
I don't know if Jacare, I know mentally he's been training for that, but I don't know if actually in the fight Jacare's gonna be ready for that because not many, if you watch the tape of him in the UFC, not many guys have gone after him. Not many guys have tried to really bring the fight to him. And to be honest, Jacare hasn't fought a lot of top name guys in the UFC. He fought Belfort, he's a name, but he's he's past his prime. Beating up Kamozi two or three times, what does that mean? Is that supposed to impress me? I don't know who else he fought in the UFC, but he hasn't been fighting a lot of names except for Musasi and Romero were the best guys he fought. Musasi didn't go after him, Romero did. And I feel that if Boach plays a disciplined but a very aggressive game, he can go after him, he can land a big shot, and if he can just get the momentum going, that's all it takes to get this fight in the direction he wants to take it to. It's just a matter of how disciplined is he going to be in his attacks. He has to be very disciplined because Jacare is still a top-end athlete. But I don't think his striking, his overall striking, especially defensively, is good enough to stay away from Tim the whole time. His grappling is there, but I don't have any faith that he's going to be able to dominate Tim in clinches or in scrambles or hold him down on the ground, much less consistently get him down. So I'm thinking Bosch is actually going to pull it out. I don't know, I don't know if it, it could be by decision. I think he'd feel a lot better if he could get him to a position where he could finish him. But I'm going to go with Bosch on this, not because Marcus was on the show, but just for what I've seen in the fights and what I've seen Jock Ray had to deal with. Uh, it, it's a little bit different when you have a guy who's really going to come after you and a guy who will not get dissuaded when he's down a couple rounds or he's getting beat up for a couple rounds. We know that we know Bo's history. He won't quit. You have to beat him. He will not beat himself. And I don't know if I don't know if Jacare is going to be able to come out and just clearly beat him. If he does, I'll be very impressed. This is a very tough fight for him. Just because Boch isn't highly ranked doesn't mean this isn't a very dangerous fight for him. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a very dangerous fight for um, both guys involved. I'm looking at, um, you know, I, I'm I'm a fan of of grappling, especially in the MMA space, and that's why I'm leaning towards uh, Sosa in this fight, especially if he finds a way to close the gap quickly. But um, if this fight goes wrong for him, I see it kind of looking like the bout between Yushin Okami and um, Timbo from back. When, when was that? That was back in... Oh, my God. That was a long time ago. Uh, 2012 at UFC 144 when, you know, Okami was winning that fight. He was winning it with grappling. And I don't know what Timbo corner must have said to him right before that third round. But he comes out and starts landing those uppercuts. That's like almost video game-esque to... Um, put uh, Okami out. So being a grappler yourself, and, and I know that Jacare has a huge advantage on the ground, but my, my question was this, like like with those entries and those takedowns, a lot of the a lot of what I see from Jacare, there's technique there, but he's usually so much f- physically stronger and so much more a better athlete than the guy he's he's fighting when he gets these takedowns. What's he gonna how do you feel that affects as a grappler? How's it affect when you feel a guy who's got a better pedigree as far as in the wrestling and has a has to compare it either has a strength advantage or is comparably strong to you i know jujitsu and takedowns aren't supposed to always be strength but but strength and conditioning and athleticism play a factor so what does it mean when he locks up with a guy who can really lock up with them who, who he can't just ragdoll and move around the cage well i'm going to i'm going to push back on that one because i i i, I yes Tim Bosch is the phys- is a bigger man. Um, he struggled against a lot of smaller guys though in the past when it comes to being able to take him down, such as like Mark Munoz. Um, Luke Rockhold is like physically he's taller than Bosch, but he's not bigger. Um, and so he's he's dealt with guys who are smaller than him and who are um, like Ed Herman for well, Ed, Ed Herman knocked him out, but um, 
when I think about Sosa as a grappler, he's dealt with bigger guys when it comes to the grappling circuit. Um, from a MMA standpoint, I think that this is going to be I think he has uh, enough of a takedown ability to get this fight to the ground, especially off of the cage. I don't think it'll be some type of like dynamic double leg or something like that that makes it happen. I believe both will be ready for the uh, for the, the the sprawl there, especially like the sprawl and elbows a la um, Travis Brown. But if, so, if this fight gets up against the cage, I think that that's where Sosa's takedowns will, will, will come from. Yeah, I, I can see that. I just, I think, I've, it, as I've noticed with Boch recently, he's gotten a little bit better of his spatial awareness. And now he doesn't just back straight up. He kind of angles out or he circles out. So I don't know that, I don't know that Jacare is going to be getting those, those clean take, those getting him, him up against the cage as easily. And also Boch is a lot better with, punching on the move now. And I know it, we're talking about grappling, but the one thing you have with grappling, you have to be in a certain range to effectively shoot or effectively clinch. If you're too far out, you're telegraphed. Mm-hmm. So if Boch, if he's in that range and Boch is switching up between a jab or an uppercut or hook to the body, whatever he's trying to throw, and he's switching the angles and the, and the rhythm with his footwork, it makes it really hard for you to set up that shot. Because even if you, you're dynamic, you can explode, you have to set up for the shot. You can't just jump into it. You'll be off balance. You're not committed. You have to set up for it. So that means you have to get in a position where his hands, his hands, and maybe even his knees can get to you. So it, it's kind of I don't know. I don't know that Jack Ray's going to be able to work his way around that. And then once he works it around it, then what happens? That that's kind of my question. He's not going to have that easy entry that he had with Kamozi, who didn't want to engage, or Musasi was trying definitely to, in, who to me was trying to avoid engagement with Jack Ray. He's going to have a guy who's going to come right at him and meet him at the point of contact, which Romero did, and Romero caught him early. Romero's a much more much more dynamic athlete than Bosch, but both of them, at least when they're being aggressive, are very aggressive. They're swinging heavy leather. They're coming very hard and implementing that physical aspect of their game, and I haven't seen Jacare have to deal with that very often. Most of the time, he hasn't. Against physical guys, he hasn't looked as dominant. He didn't look as dominant against Romero when he fought Tim Kennedy, another physical guy. He didn't look nearly as dynamic, not on the feet, in clinches, or in scrambles. Yeah, so, um, man, this is probably going to be, like, the, the toughest fight of the weekend to pick. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens um, when these two get in the cage. Let's see what else is kind of popping out to me. Then we have the fight I'm probably looking forward to the most, where we got Dustin Poirier and Jim Miller. I think this is when, this one's going to steal the show, in my my opinion. Um, these are two guys who are – it's it's amazing. Um Jim Miller, Jim Miller's a grappler at heart. That's never stopped him from getting in there and throwing leather with, with the guys. Um, look back to his two fights with with Joe Lozon, who I, who I think are two two fights that are very underrated for how um, how they how how great they were. You have that, then you have um, then you have Dustin Poirier, who is kind of a question mark at, at lightweight. He um, has dealt with some in- injury issues, and in my opinion, I think he's headed. He's someone who takes a lot, a lot of damage. And we heard Marcus Davis talk about being punchy. Um, we may be looking at someone who is in that headed to, towards that same state in Dustin Poirier. So, break down this fight for me here and tell me what you think is going to happen. It really comes down to if Poirier is going to fight smart or stupid. Like I know people who train with Poirier. I know people who work with him on a regular basis, and and talk, told me before. It's like when he fought Conor McGregor. They're like that wrestling game you saw all late after he lost, he lost to McGregor and that discipline and that controlled aggression, that defensive awareness, he's always had that. But he's one of those guys who always pushes it aside. And when he does that, he, he makes himself vulnerable 
to big counters, to people's leads, to just takedowns himself. And and Poirier's, from what I've been told, has the full skill set. He can grapple really well. He can wrestle. He can kickbox. He can box. He can transition between the ranges. He can work you over in the clinch. But the thing is, sometimes he gets too emotional and he fights dumb. He This isn't an emotional fight because him and Miller respect each other. There's, there's no trash talk. There's no... I'm going to knock you out and you're not in my class. It's a straight up fight between two professional fighters. So I expect Dustin Poirier to be on his game and very disciplined. The only issue that this is actually a good fight for him. Cause as much as I like Miller, I've always felt Miller should have dropped the weight class. And if he would have dropped the weight class, he could have been, a, he would have fought for a title by now. It seems like when Miller gets against the better names, the bigger and more skilled guys in division, he always comes up a little bit short against the third, the fourth, the third, and the, the second tier guys. He's in ex exciting fights, but he's finishing guys. He's submitting them. He's beating them up on the ground. Sometimes he's beating them up on the feet. But once he gets to a certain caliber opponent, he seems to come to a grinding halt. It happened against Donald Cerrone. It happened against Benson Henderson. It, and I believe it's going to happen against Dustin Poirier again, unless Poirier's chin has just been demolished by Michael Johnson. But Poirier's been out for a while. He's kind of recovered. And like I said, he shouldn't be fighting emotionally. He should be using the full skill set and looking at this as a professional and not as somebody who's engaged in a back and forth with somebody. When those emotions get involved, Poirier's fight IQ goes the opposite direction. When his, his emotions get high, his fight IQ goes down low. And that's that's been the cause of the majority of his losses, him fighting dumb, him engaging when he shouldn't be engaging, him fighting to the strengths of his opponent. I think Dustin Poirier is a better classifier. I don't know that he's a better grappler or wrestler per se, but I think as far as putting it all together and having the size and athletic ability, he's superior to Jim Miller. Jim Miller is a lot closer to the end of his career than Dustin Poirier is. Dustin Poirier was a top ring lightweight when he dropped. He's a top ring featherweight. And now he's, he's still a fairly high ranked lightweight. This is the kind of guy that in my, in my research that Miller historically loses to. And I think he loses to him again. If, Miller, some, if Miller beats Poirier, Poirier's got a lot of work to do because this is as good as Miller is, he's not the kind of guy you lose to if you're looking to be a title challenger. All the guys who've beaten Miller have gone, either gotten really close to or gotten title shots. If Poirier loses to him, that's a huge step back to the end of the line and essentially says he's nowhere near ready to be a top 10 fighter, top 5 fighter, or title title challenger. And I like yeah. him, but the the, the, his, the facts are the facts, and history is what it is. When he, he gets up, he gets this kind of guy, he usually loses historically. What was interesting is that maybe, man, I don't even remember how long ago, but years ago, I have actually wrote about a piece. I touched upon something that you said for MMA ratings that, you know, um, that Miller could be someone who could benefit from um, dropping a weight class. I just don't think he could physically cut down to 145 because he's kind of, he's one of those, He's one of those short, stocky type of lightweights. He's not like a tall, lanky guy like um, Cerrone. So, unfortunately, I, th I think that there was always that physical limitation that um, stopped him from being able to make 145. But I totally agree with you. I think he could have been someone that could have been a real force at featherweight if he was actually ever able to make that weight. Yeah, I mean, I, I like him. He's, he's a pro's pro. He's tough. He's gutsy. He's, he's improved. He's actually improved on every single level. He's improved as a fighter. Most guys kind of plateau and get by on pace or toughness, whatever. He's actually technically improved on every level. But it just seems when he faces those guys with that, 
that physical ability, that size, that strength, and that athleticism, he hits a brick wall. And it's just been historically Benson Henderson, brick wall. Donald Cerrone, he he had him in trouble a little bit, and then Cerrone asserted himself, brick wall. And I'm and I'm I'm feeling that a similar thing is going to happen against Dustin Poirier. And he as good as Miller's looked in his last two fights. If I if I recall correctly, he did he still did lose the he still did lose to Diego Sanchez, who is also one of a kind of like a big physical lightweight. So it's like it's been a trend with them: big physical guys with at least these with a good skill set and experience usually are where he stops. And it's been from as high as Benson Henderson and Donald Cerrone to as low as Diego Sanchez. That that trend has never changed in his career, and I have a hard time believing it's going to change now. If it does, he's proven me wrong, but I, I just don't see it unless unless I said Poirier's chin is gone. Otherwise, he should be fighting full IQ, full focus, full skill set. And if he does that, he should win this, and he should win it handily. So tell me then, looking at this full card, you know, I think we've gone over some of the fights that are that stand out to us the most. What else catches your eye about UFC 208? I think it's a card that hasn't gotten this. It hasn't definitely haven't hasn't gotten the same amount of promotion that of uh, other cards in recent memory. Um, and I think that we're going to see. I think we're going to see a drop off in pay-per-view buys for sure. But what is, what's something that kind of catches your eye when you look at this entire card? The pay-per-views are going to be like someone jumped off a cliff. That's, that's how hard they're going to, they're going to fall. I mean, they're, they're basically pinning it all on Anderson Silva being on this card. And, and hopefully that'll, that'll raise them. They, they don't really have to, it's like they have no faith in this card to be quite honest. Um, a fight, a couple of, I'm, I'm interested in a couple of fights. Um, Glover, the Glover Teixeira fight against Jared Kenny, I can't say that Kenny year. That's interesting to me because Glover Teixeira was one point a title challenger, a top, what top five light heavyweight in the world. And this guy he's fighting to my knowledge, isn't really even, might not even be ranked in the top 15. So, I mean, the guy's exciting. He's athletic. He's shown some grit and durability and, and, and some versatility and cage IQ. But this is a very dangerous fight for Glover because if Glover loses, it's almost like the fight OSP lost last weekend. It's one thing when you're losing to a certain class of guy. That still keeps you in the UFC. That still keeps you in the top ranking. When you start losing to a certain class, when you start losing to guys below that class, that's when your job security and your ranking and your paycheck get negatively affected. And if he loses to a guy like that, I don't care how dynamic and how good he's looked, that's not going to be a good look for him moving forward or give him any leverage dealing with the, the company moving forward. I mean, he's already a guy who's late in his career and late in his age. Physically, he's not going to be who he was two, three, four years ago, but against a guy like in against a guy who's this athletic and this powerful, it's a really risky fight. So I'm very interested to see if Glover's made some specific strategical and technical adjustments to make up for the, the, the physical decline. And I'm very interested to see how he takes this fight because it's not a big fight. It's not a big name fight. And he might not be able to get up for it mentally, but if he loses this fight, he's essentially out of any sort of championship or contender status talks for like the next three or four fights, which is like another year, year and a half. Easy. And with his age, the way the the way the new owners are kind of jettisoned fighters who they um are being deemed like aren't aren't star worthy and I put that in air quotes the way those guys are getting kicked off the roster man you're right I wouldn't be surprised if we do look up and see his name amongst a list of guys getting cut same thing with Jim Miller too he can find himself on on the way out if he takes a bad loss on Saturday yeah yeah I mean but Jim Miller at least has unlike Teixeira never Jim Miller 
doesn't have a huge fan base, but he has a he has a certain fan base, and he fights at a lower weight class. So there's a lot of options out there. I mean, with some of the losses that uh, WSOF had and Bellator had, there's a place for Jim Miller right away. There's a, there's still a place because he's he's been win lose win lose win a couple lose a couple. He, he's been back and forth. Take Sharers when he's lost, it's, it's been pretty dominating, and his last loss was just tremendously ugly. It was just bad, you know. So. He's a lot closer to the end than, than even Jim Miller is, in, in my estimation. It's just interesting, the matchmaking. They're making some very fun fights. But if I'm a fighter who's trying to establish his brand or try to extend his brand, these kind of fights don't do very much for me. I have to win them because I need to keep winning. But as far as cachet, if Teixeira beats this guy, that doesn't do a lot for his name. It doesn't do a lot for his brand. It's not a big name. It's not even a top-ranked guy. If this guy beats Teixeira or if he gives him a tough fight, his stock goes up. It's Teixeira loses it loses this guy. I don't know, man. That 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 I don't know if he can come back from that. To be quite honest. So last topic I want to talk about. Say you brought it up. Actually, you mentioned it with the World Series of Fighting. Um, they lost two champions this week, and in actuality, they lost three because David Branch held two titles. Um, both uh, both David Branch and Marlon Morales are free agents, and they're supposed to be um having conversations with the UFC. What are your thoughts about this, man? Do these two guys, you know, David Branch, was, it would be a second time in the promotion. Um, Marlon Morales would be a, a big signing for the organization. What do you think both will happen if both these guys join Zufa and head, make their way to the Octagon? I'm really, I am really, really, I'm kind of shocked by, by Sergio because um, I'm kind of thinking like. Marlon, you mean Marlon? Excuse me, Marlon, I'm sorry. He was getting paid. I'm like, is the UFC going to match that? Like. I think he was making ninety five. We'll, we'll that that's what I'm saying. Who there's 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 guys with names in the UFC. With UFC wins who don't make ninety five ninety five. There might be, you know, top five guys who don't make ninety five ninety five. That's a I, I'm shocked that the UFC is either considering paying this. I don't know if it's some kind of front loaded contract or something. It's just very shocking to me that the UFC is in and he's he's got a chance with Zufa because <laughs> He's been getting paid so much, you know. That that's the biggest reason I never thought he'd come over because where else is he going to get that payday at? Who's going to pay him that money? Bellator's not paying him that, and I, I'm shocked that the UFC is even considered paying him that. So that that that's very shocking to me. If he actually ends up going through, and I can't imagine him taking a 50% pay cut just to fight the best in the world, I wouldn't do that. If I have a wife and kid, I'm not taking a 50% pay cut so I can come over and fight the best. I'll just fight whoever else I can, and, and keep building up college funds and building houses and. Keep my wife happy. I'm not coming over there to prove something to myself. That isn't that is that isn't work in the real world. I mean, maybe so, it's one of those situations where you know he's made a lot. I mean, he's only 28 years old, so he's made a lot of money, and or he's made what he's deemed to be enough of money, and he's doing it to step out and challenge himself. What's interesting is that um, and well, David, well, Rafael, you fought before, you so you know you understand the sacrifices the fighter make. You know the dangers of a fighting career, correct? Correct. You can never make enough money when you're a combat sports athlete. Hell to the Like, I mean, that's where I enough stand. Money, enough money is for basketball players and baseball players, which are very tough. Don't get me wrong. Those are very hard sports to compete in. But when you're a combat sports athlete, you can turn around at, at the flip of a light. At snap. You never make enough money. That's why you will never hear me disrespect people who are going after money. You can never make enough because your career could be over. Because of sparring, you get a concussion and never fight again. You can get in a car accident and never be able to fight again. You can get knocked out really bad and never fight again. You can never make enough money. Man, we're still, waiting on, we're still waiting on TJ Grant to return. Exactly. exactly. Chris Holdsworth won the Ultimate Fighter. Where's he been at? <laughs> I didn't even realize. Yup. 
Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. You can, you, you can never make enough money. It seems like enough money now, but if something happens to him, it won't seem like a, a lot of it won't seem like a lot of money. It will not when the money's not coming in. It no, no no amount of money seems like a lot when the money stops coming in. So I can understand challenging yourself, but let's let's deal in the real world. Challenges David Brand said something very interesting when he said, you know, he's felt like he's done all he could in World Series of Fighting, and he's looking for the next thing in his career. So I I I, I listen. I get him. He, he's probably not, he's not making super super money, and and the divisions he competes in. They're thin enough where he could win two or three fights and be right in the title title talks, but in in the Marlins divisions, it's not two or three fights to get you to a title. You got a little bit of a ways to go, and they're not going to do him any favors, especially if they pay him a lot. He's getting thrown in the deep end, and that's going to be we're going to find out how good he is very soon because he's not going to get an easy pass. And if he loses the fight, it's going to be more of an uphill battle. With Branch, light heavyweight and middleweight aren't super super dense. They're not super thick. They're not super deep. You can win two or three fights and be in a title talk. If Tim Bosch wins his third fight in a row, he might he might be up for a title fight. I guarantee you, Michael Bisham over Yol, he'll pick Tim over Yol any day if he can. So he could be one fight away from a title fight. So Branch has options going in there. Marlon is going to have to fight through a, a deep weight class and have to put multiple wins together before he gets anywhere near a title fight because he doesn't have a fan base. All he has is his dynamic skills and his entertaining style. That, that does not guarantee you a title fight. That does not guarantee you a title opportunity. It sure doesn't. It sure doesn't. Um, man, this has been a, um, a great show, some great conversation. Again, we want to take a minute to thank Marcus Davis and um, thank the special appearance of uh, Tim Bosch as well. We appreciate both of those guys coming on. And that's going to be something new that we're adding to um, – to our podcast. We're looking at doing more interviews, bringing on more guys. I know we always do some good analysis on the news and other stories that are going on in the sport, but we want to look, look at bringing more of the fighters and more of the personalities in. Let let me tell the fans one thing. We worked really hard. Like I didn't have any way of getting a hold of, of Marcus Davis. I tried Twitter. wasn't working. I didn't have any email. I don't, I don't know anybody who knows him. So I went through every single possible measure I could to get in contact with him. And I'm like, I'm never going to get a hold of this guy. I get an email. He says he can do it. This was last second for us. We didn't have this planned out weeks and months in advance. We just put this all together in like less than a week's time to get him on the show to, for the fans because we wanted you to see a different side of him and get a, a coach's perspective. And we wanted to give you all something different than just hearing us go back and forth about the news and breakdowns. We wanted to expand our, our platform so that you could get more pleasure out of it. And you can get more knowledge out of it. But this was something last second we just pulled out. And we made it happen for you guys because I was like, it's right before 208. The fans will love it. People will love this. We need to get this out for them. And Rafael said, all right, you you get, you get, lock him in for me, Shawan. I will make it happen. And Rafael Garcia delivered for me. He told me he'd make it happen. All I had to do was get him a guess. I got him a guess. He made it happen. So we all need to thank Rafael for making this happen and interrupting the flow of the show so that he could get this done. His side isn't easy. He does all the technical stuff. I just I'm, I'm just here for the looks and the charm. To get the ratings for the ladies. That's what I'm here for. Rafael <laughs> Yale does all the real manual stuff. And he had a show set up and he changed it all around because I said, Hey, I got Marcus Davis, Tim's fighting in 208. We got to make this happen. He said, You lock him in, I'll make it happen for you. And he made it happen. So we need to give Rafael our thanks 
for his hard work and his efforts. No, nah, man, it was definitely a um, team effort. So I appreciate you doing that. And um, yeah, thank us by liking and sharing the um, sharing the, the, the show that you got to listen to today. And just be back to listen to us next week. Um, we're going to be doing some um, great. Uh, we're going to be continuing our show, looking at some of the news, doing a recap of USC 208. So just be sure to uh, check us out next Wednesday when we bring you another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. So um, again, Schwan, thanks for coming on. Always appreciate you. And um, have enjoy the rest of, the, of your week. Yeah, too, sir. You take it easy. Have a good one.